Hey everybody, welcome back to, I think we're calling this a prestige film, which uh, it, it consternated us a little bit in a pre-podcast discussion. It's uh, 1989's The Adventures of Baron Manchhausen. Munchausen? I uh, say this Munch. Is a, a Munch. Oh yeah. <laughs> Why go Manch when you go Munch? Sure. Uh, this was directed by Terry Gilliam, one of the... Famous, world famous, infamous Monty Python crew uh, mm-hmm. of the Flying Circus. Uh, you might recognize him as King Arthur's servant Patsy in the the Holy Grail. Uh, he also previous to this directed Time Bandits in Brazil. Uh, subsequent to this, he went on to direct The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, among a few others. Uh, it's written by Terry Gilliam and Charles McCown, uh, McKeon, McKeown. I don't know. I've really struggled with the Welsh, Scottish, Irish <laughs> yeah. stuff. Uh, and insulting. I really struggle with insulting the, the, the British Isles by lumping everybody all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a they, they met on the set of um, Life of Life of Brian, and they became frequent writing collaborators uh, on Time Pilots, Brazil. Uh, 12 Monkeys, uh, almost all Terry, Terry stuff. Uh, it stars John Neville, which his immortal role in my mind is the well-manicured man from the X-Files series. That's that's when I see this guy's face. I think of the hmm. arch conspiracy architect. Um, Eric Idle, uh, another Python. Uh, you'll recognize him as Sir Robin, the cowardly from Monty Python's uh, Holy Grail. Sarah Polly, who the only thing I recognized her in uh, is the two, 2004 Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead yeah. film. Uh, Oliver Reed, who is a very famous English actor uh, who I was introduced to in his final role as Proximo on Gladiator. He was the uh, gladiator mentor of Maximus. Uh, who earned his freedom as a Roman citizen in the in the Colosseum and actually died in the middle of filming. It's a tragic story. Maybe we'll get to talking about it. Wow. Uh, Uman Thurman, and I think her second ever film role. You, everyone knows Uma, you know, Pulp Fiction, Gattaca, Kill Bill. Sure. Jonathan Price, who Bald Boo fans will recognize as being the evil High Sparrow from Game of Thrones. He's also the governor from the Pirates of the Caribbean films and General Perone from Evita. Also, Robin Williams, credited as some crazy wild man, which I don't know. That's probably pretty close to the truth. He's the king of the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sting's in there somewhere. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's quite, quite an interesting cast, um, talented cast. Music by Michael Kamen, um, who has done, you know, in his, in his short life, did a hell of a lot of stuff. Highlander, X-Men, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, License to Kill, the entire Lethal Weapon series. The first three diehards, Mr. Holland's Opus, The Iron Giant, Frequency, Memento. Um, so this is this is part of the trilogy of imagination that Terry Gilliam uh, conceived as uh, the reaction to the craziness of our ordered society and man's desire to escape it through whatever means possible. Uh, and it reflects in Time Bandits, the imagination of youth, Brazil, supposedly the imagination of the adult adulthood and then this is the imagination of the the elderly um and it's based loosely on tall tales about a german adventurer an actual real life 16th century uh baron named hieronymus carl friedrich friar von Monchausen, uh which was compiled and translated and and they kept on bouncing back and forth between english-speaking countries and german-speaking countries and around the continent and it just kept on growing in a very paul bunyan type of way 
this was commissioned by Epic Mouthful, uh, who commissioned two previous Lord of the Rings films and Predator, which will probably come out after this one. Uh, we'll get to her comments, but Jesus, I've been talking for five minutes and we haven't even said hello to Jim here. Jim, hey, thanks for stopping by the podcast. How'd you like the adventures of the Baron here? You're waiting for the full five minutes to elapse? <laughs> I just waited for people to think you were talking to yourself in a void. Uh, I really liked the Baron Munchausen, Adventures of the Baron Munchausen. Uh, I realized after watching this that I have seen more Terry Gilliam movies than I thought. I didn't realize that he did 12 Monkeys. I didn't realize that he did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, both of which I've seen and loved. And now that I know that, I look at those movies and I go, oh, of course he did. Of course exactly. he did. Because they look exactly like this movie. Um, yeah. It, or at least have parts, like the lizard people lounge scene. Like uh-huh. that's yeah. like... Th- this so, wide yeah. angle lens stuff that he does mm-hmm. and these crazy mm-hmm. close-ups and this imaginative uh, scenery that he puts in there. Like all that stuff is in those movies and I just didn't notice it. Um or I never connected those dots. And I've also seen Zero Theorem, which is kind of one of his later works, ah, which yeah. is really mm-hmm. good, starring Christoph Waltz uh, and and a couple other people that... Oh, shit, that's... Yeah, we saw that. That was a commission uh, a few years back. Okay, I forgot that we actually saw that. Yes. Was that? I, I can't remember if it was a commission, but I know I was trying to do a silent movie about it, and I just... It didn't work out. <laughs> mm. Like, we, we tried to do it, and it didn't work, so... I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I've seen that movie. And I really like that one. That's more kind of of a piece with these movies, this trilogy of imagination. I think Zero Theorem mm-hmm. is closer to one of those than like a 12 Monkeys or Fear and Loathing. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I really enjoyed the imaginative spirit uh, that he brings to these movies. And, uh, you know, you see the Monty Python print all over this too, because this is the guy who invented the Monty Python aesthetic, essentially. Like, he was the illustrator for all of their early stuff, um, came up with all, all those things you think of as the connective pieces between the Monty Python sketches. Um, that yeah, very those little transition. Like, yeah. Where angels are blowing trumpets with their butts. Uh-huh. And yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it has like a cutout kind of storybook look to it. That's sure. This guy did all that. So um, he's got a very definitive style and aesthetic and that comes through in his movies too. So that's one of the things I appreciated about it. But, I, I loved the gruesome kind of slapstick humor of this movie. Um, mm-hmm. I like that there's some social commentary, some social satire that he brings to that. And I assume that's, you know, a running theme through all his stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Especially some of those that later movie zero theorem. I definitely noticed it. Um, and and it's, it's a, I haven't seen time bandits, but I have seen I, Brazil and it's very yeah. much of a piece with that. Yeah. I haven't seen either uh, of those, Zero Theorem. and I, I need to go back and watch those because I really enjoyed this. How about you? Yeah, Robert De Niro in a Terry Gilliam film, you know. Oh, is it? Which one is that? Yeah, a Brazil. Okay, nice. <laughs> that sounds uh, interesting. It is. It is like all these films are. Yeah. Um, when I was watching this, I was like, this is very much like an adult never-ending story. Okay. Or, or yeah. maybe it's a juvenile never-ending story because never-ending story has some genuine pathos. Uh-huh. Like, there's some loss and connection to characters where this is much more... Or or it's like a, an 18th century Avengers film. The horse fares better the, in this movie, I'll say that. 
this is this is true. Busifus uh, uh, uh-huh. is is a real badass in this one. Uh, I I I felt like that this we were talking about it before in a podcast how like influential this film well not just the film series the stories of the Baron Munchausen himself I I know in like mm-hmm. a lot I guess in the English speaking the English speaking world the Baron has largely been forgotten in the 20th century yeah but he's still quite popular in continental Europe um and I can see why like this is absolute like does Paul Bunyan exist without the Baron Munchausen do comic book mm. heroes exist without the Baron Munchausen? Because this is, yeah. in a very real sense, a superhero film. This is the Avengers. You've got the brains and the authority and the leadership, the Captain America. you got a Hawkeye. you got the world's strongest kind of man, kind of like the Hulk. you got a world's fastest man, like the Flash. And I know I'm blending a little DC and my Marvel there, but, you know, <laughs> uh, they're all pulling from this guy, apparently, because they and and, you know, it's it's. It's 1989, so the, some of the special effects are going to be obviously special effects. They're not as seamless and just like all of a piece as they are today. But I found that very charming in, in a lot of the same way that we talked about Labyrinth, where mm-hmm. it was just kind of a joy to see. It's like, well, yeah, obviously that's just people's hands working together to make a face. But that's kind of fucking cool. I didn't know that you could put yeah. like f- six hands together and make an articulated puppet. Uh, there's a many, many scenes where, like, you know, the Baron flies a, a balloon to the moon. Uh, he uh, winds up on an undersea realm. He goes to meet Vulcan in a volcano, um, gets to meet Aphrodite. Like, there's all this stuff. And it's like uh, there's also really cool, like, 18th century kind of stage mm-hmm. uh, th- stagecraft. Like, you know, one of the 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 the, the conceit of the movie is. There is a play being put on in a war-torn country about the Baron to entertain people as the 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 evil forces are at the gate, and an elderly Baron Manchausen like crashes the thing and is like, "This is ridiculous! You've made a mockery of my life." But it turns out his real because his real life is ten times crazier. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I'm not even sure if that's what actually happened because the movie yeah. somewhat pulls the rug out from underneath me at the very end, which I kind of enjoyed too. But uh, yeah, like this is not a super even film. Sure. There was a couple stretches where like I like I found myself getting engrossed in each set piece. But like when it was connecting from set piece to set piece, I was kind of like, well, now what? And what were we doing? Why are we mm-hmm. here? Like that kind of stuff. Um, Can but- I say something controversial here? I think please. My least favorite set piece of this entire thing is the Moon King. Uh, because I, I realized I don't actually like Robin Williams comedy stuff nearly as much as I like his drama. Uh, uh I'm a fan of I mean, one hour photo and, you know, world's greatest dad and what dreams may come that stuff where it, he's a very specific type of comedy that I just am not really in tune with. I like Robin Williams stand up and I like Robin Williams comedy stuff, um, especially when he's not like trying to work PG. Um, Mm, But like, you're right. This is kind of like a live action version of his genie character. Like you can almost see him noodling. Yeah, this is a Robin Williams showcase, not part of the movie. It's just like we put Robin Williams in a movie and he needs to be Robin Williams. So let him do his thing. And that's Robin Williams. Like if you like it, you like it. If you don't might turn you off 
And it's a fairly silly character, but I, I but I, I didn't um, I I actually enjoyed that, like because I, I like kind of Mork and Mindy era Robin Williams. And gotcha. this is very much of a piece of that. Oh, yeah. And wearing a silly costume, essentially prancing around in a green screen or blue screen robe and, you know, playing a disembodied head. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that. Uh, let's see, which was, I guess. Maybe the moon one was the one that I, I thought drug on a little bit along too, but I, I didn't have any problems with like the actual set pieces is more of like when we're going between there's like it, it took like five to ten minutes to get from one thing to the other usually. And that's where I found myself kind of like, oh, right. This is about him and the girl trying to find help for the city. And why do I and, you yeah. know, kind of like until it got going again, like kind of like looking at my watch a bit. I mean, I do, but, uh, I do like the the message, you know, of that uh, sequence, and I think like the idea is cool, um, like the the head versus the 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 mind versus the body, right? Like mm-hmm. the physical desires versus the intellectual pursuits, uh, that whole thing. That that worked, and I, I thought it was good. Uh, it was maybe just a little too long, a little too much. Robin yeah. take the wheel kind of thing for me. Yeah, and I, I guess you're right when because like you, you first meet him, he's this cerebral thing with the head, and he's concerned with higher matters, and he gets reconnected with his body, and it's like, oh no, I've, I'm chained to <laughs> orgasms and farts again, right? And right. that was actually really funny, but like they did uh-huh. that gag where the head breaks free and is raptured, and then is recaptured by its body. I think two more times, and yeah, I could see yeah, it. It, it, it gets a the, the rest of this movie uh, though, I really loved. Yeah, and it really resol- revolves around everyone being a ham except for John uh, Neville or Neville mm-hmm. because he has to be completely unflappable. Like, this yeah. is a man who routinely gets swallowed by whales to where he's got, like, a shortcut. He's like, yeah, I've, I've, I've done this before. And, and he's got all these fantastic companions, and he expects to win everywhere he goes. So, like, why? I mean, this is a mistake I think, like, the Harry Potter films make egregiously is like Harry Potter up until like well into the fourth and fifth films is still like slack jawed amazed at <laughs> minor and magical interludes in the especially first beginning of the movie yeah. and I know there's a lot of Harry Potter's that's because he spends all the summers with his fucking muggle parent and, and he doesn't get exposed <laughs> now he's like, yeah settle down settle down if if you like you know came from a culture with no guns and then nine months out of the year, you went to the America, America, and then you went back to wherever it is again. You, you wouldn't like, oh, my God, guns are amazing every time you got back. Right. I mean, I don't know. I yeah, just thought that yeah. was dumb. And John Neville's not like that. He, he yeah. lives in a world of magic. He expects to see the magic. Uh, he's only mildly disappointed when he can't, like, exploit the situation to it to hilt. Like, uh, annoyance that he can't actually steal Venus from Vulcan, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, but never like, you know, like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm I, my manservant's the world's fastest man. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the just imagination, the color. I, I wish that, man, I'm getting a little irritated with Amazon because sometimes the stream quality is not there. Oh. And like, I felt like, I felt like this picture could be a little bit brighter. Um, just in terms of its palette, you know, it's it's a little mm. bit too uh, Monty Python drab and desaturated when it I think it could have been benefited from a lot more vivid color. And some of the some of the some of the bit rate issues were kind of compounding that for me. Um, Is that are, but, are you saying like do? that Amazon 
it did something to the movie to make it no, no, not as colorful, no, I, or I th- it's just I the movie that, is not colorful, so it needed better bit rate. Yes, yeah, okay. to, to really make that effect pop. And uh, yeah. gotcha. also, I just yeah, I think I think the film. This is just the this is his aesthetic, but it's a little mm-hmm. shabbier. Yeah, and that's fine for like the theater aesthetic and all that stuff. But when we actually get into the world of Baron the Baron, like I think that should be kind of like. uh you know, Dorothy uh, getting sucked up by the tornado. Mm, she like you land in Technicolor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this was much okay. more like a, an autumn palette throughout the whole movie. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't really have a problem with the palette. I, I think the effects in this movie are amazing, though, because like mm-hmm. we, you know, you mentioned like how you might not be as impressed if you're used to the modern day uh CG based graphics we have, but man, these special effects for 1989 are, I, I think, great. They're like right on the cusp before computers started taking over, right before Jurassic Park entered the scene, and now suddenly you can seamlessly blend computer effects with the real world. Oh yeah, the effects that he manages to get with just cameras. Now I will say, the budget for this thing—it's one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. Uh, and At I don't the time, think they yeah. intended that to be the case. They intended to spend yeah. something like half of what they actually did spend. Uh, uh, but man, although, the, the money shows asterisks on asterisks on that conversation, because sure. there seemed to be a lot of dickery between studio and director oh, and my God. exchange of studio and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. I want to talk about that. But yeah, it was one of the more expensive uh, uh, films of its era. And it shows it shows like, all, that, so. all that practical effects are up there on the screen. Yeah, and then the um, way they use it too, it's it's a sort of you know what dreams may come esque uh, kind of thing where the imagination displayed in the effects is enhancing the the money that they put into it. Right, the, these aren't effects for effects' sake; these are effects for imagination's sake, and I really yes. enjoyed that. Yeah, and like it, it really shined for me. And we've talked about how much we love like a show within a show aesthetic. Mm-hmm. But like the early goings where they're staging the Baron's travels and it's on a stage and some of the effects work of that like felt yeah. like something you might see in like 1853 on the continent. But like that the whale that swallowed a ship and I noticed that like mm-hmm. I'm always endlessly fascinated about how people make ocean scenes. I thought this was really compelling. And when I looked at how they did it, it was essentially multiple helixes that are painted like water that people were turning like screws. So that made the waves kind of like overlap and going in different directions. And it gave him a parallax to, and I'm like, Holy fuck. You could probably pull that off 200 years ago and make it look amazing. And (laughs) even if you couldn't, they did it nowadays and it looks amazing. Like what if you could go see the Baron back in, I I, I thought that stuff was really cool. And like you said, relentlessly imaginative. Mm -hmm. Um, so and maybe si- silly the- and then, you know, that Monty Python brand of humor where like horrible yeah. things happen all the time. People's heads are being chopped off left and right. Uh, but but it's not like overly gruesome. It, it's kind of mm-hmm. played for slapstick comedy. And I, yeah, I really it's of no consequence. It. Right. Like you can behead 10 people like with one sword stroke. <laughs> and uh, it's just that's like Paul Bunyan fell in 10 tree, you know, 10 sequoias with a swing of his axe. Yeah. It's just a it's a tall tale. Did it ever really even happen? Were we ever even at war with the (laughs) Ottoman Empire? Like all those are questions that uh, you you can you can think about as the the film draws to a close. 
Although maybe we could just briefly describe the this this movie because like I know it sounds fantastic um, for people that want before we get into like spoilers or people don't want to see it for themselves and then maybe talk about Epic Mouthful's notes. Yeah. Uh, so Baron Manchow, the Adventures of Baron Manchowson, um, is about a uh a city that's being attacked by a hostile force, and they're staging a play to kind of like keep morale up. I think is the conceit of the film. Uh, during the play, the real life Baron Manchowson crashes it, calls everything to a halt, says this is not his real story, and essentially takes over the whole uh telling of it, but. As he starts, the enemy seems to get closer and closer, and the the the, the theater itself is beginning to be destro- destroyed, and they're enveloped, and there's no way out. So the Baron orders all the women in the city to stitch their their underwear together to fashion him a balloon to escape, so that he can fetch help. Mm-hmm. Uh, a small girl, one of the the directors of the theater's uh, daughter, uh, steals away with him, and is his constant companion through the rest of the running time of the film. As he essentially rounds up all of his own crew, the world's fastest man, the world's strongest man, uh, the world's sharpest hearer who also has super breath like Superman, uh, the world man of the world. Does he actually have the best eyesight or is he the best marksman and just has a gun that has a sight so good that he can he can he can hit an apple from 990 miles away? Let's put it that way. Right. I think it's the glasses is what I read. The glasses are the thing that gives him the great eyesight. Gotcha. And the Baron himself, who appears to be immortal, um, constantly cheating death throughout the movie. Um, yeah, I don't want to spoil the ending. And that's what it's about. It's this. This is this, this is a, a continental European Paul Bunyan, but a lot more less less log chopping and a lot more head head chopping. A lot more martial <laughs> yeah. is what I'm saying. For sure. Uh, Epic Mouthful, who, as I, as I mentioned, the. Uh, uh, also commissioned the what was it the, the 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 two towers the return of the king and predator which you guys haven't heard and that'll be coming out in a week or two. Uh, she says, "I know, I know. This commission might make bald move question my continuing membership in the community, but I'm sorry, but it's a Terry Gilliam film. I figured commissioning Predator first would make up for this commission. We did you dirty by by leading off uh, with this first. Honestly, it's this is a fine commission." Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite films back in the day. I haven't watched it for several years, but it definitely will once the podcast comes out. As a kid, I remember it being very confusing. When I got a little older, I remember thinking it was incredibly well made and very clever. At its core, it's the height of escapist entertainment, and that's what I've been craving during this pandemic. The main protagonist is simply trying to daydream his way out of a pretty dire existence, and now, after a year in coronavirus lockdown, I can relate. My entertainment diet this past year has been mainly nostalgia or comfort and rewatching this movie and then getting to listen to the ball move podcast about it will hit both sweet spots. I like to think this movie is slightly easier to watch than some of his uh, Gilliam's other work. Apologies in advance if when you don't enjoy it and don't feel bad about hurting my feelings. I know it's not a general crowd pleaser ah. that I don't know that it's not. This film is like north of 90 percent on Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. with an audience score of like 78 percent. So it's not like, oh, hoity toity art film uh what i watched it and i'm thinking how would you not like this movie i yeah yeah and it is a family film like there's a one point Mm -hmm. where i I keep on thinking that would get blue uh i didn't see what this was rated by just going in and seeing the gilliam's other stuff i assumed it would be r but every single time like there's this point where the the you think that the moon king is ravishing the moon queen's body 
Right. And uh, Baron Munchausen is trying to explain it to this little kid. And he's like, you know, awkwardly saying, you, you see, uh, the, the king has got the queen's body in his grip and he's uh, tickling her feet. And then when you find out Robin Williams is literally that's what he's doing. He's tickling his wife's yeah. feet to try to, to try to make her laugh. And he can't because her head is in another. It's a whole situation. So. But yeah, it's like if, if you like never ending story. I don't know why the hell you wouldn't like this film. If you, like, like, I think both um, the only difference is maybe never ending story works better if you do see it as a kid than it does if you saw it as an adult sure. where I think this would work equally well. Like a kid, they kind of like Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think a three-year-old gets a lot out of that film mm-hmm. and a 30-year-old gets a lot out of that film. And yeah, hey, that's, that's a good comparison. The, the Wes Anderson stuff. I also felt a little bit of that in the stage play. Um, mm. it, it, there's like some kind of vibe going on there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a lot like the other Monty Python stuff. I think if you're a Monty Python fan, you're going to like this movie because there's that same absurdist humor. There's that same, uh, aesthetic in a lot of places. Uh, obviously this is the guy who made it. And I, I just think it's a good movie all around. It's, I I can't think of anything to hate about this movie. Yeah. Um, there's also you, you mentioned a couple of times like social commentary uh-huh. and it's not like, you know, anything that's like specifically political. Right. Um, it's more of like uh, it, 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 all, it almost yeah. all comes into like the form of uh, Jonathan Price's um, mm-hmm. Jackson character, because there's a couple of points where like the town, it's hopeless. The war's over. They've lost. And they're, they're, they're talking about uh, right, retreating to get away. And he says something like, we can't escape like a time like this. What will our future generations think? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a little bit of shot at the end about like, you know, whether the war is necessary to fight. And I think also whether the war is even real. Um, Dude, there's I think like saying there's not much social commentary in here is selling this movie short. I think it's everywhere, but it's. It's selling a worldview that Terry Gilliam has, right? About like, in my opinion, this movie is all about the death of the death and and hopefully the life of hopes and dreams and imagination and inspiration uh, and and tr- mm. attempting to make the world a better place in the process. Because I won't get to the end yet, but there there are so many things where like. That that Jackson guy, Horatio Jackson, the the town ruler, uh, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term, it, it stings in it for five seconds, and he comes in and he's lauded as this hero. Right? They're saying this is the man who did all these heroic things, uh, and and saved all these people. And and Horatio's like, okay, kill him. And, and that that is like a funny, stupid, absurdist moment, but it's the kind of absurd that makes you think. Oh no, he's killing him because he doesn't want the people to be inspired. He doesn't want the people to realize that they have other options besides sitting in a theater uh bemoaning their fate and entertaining themselves as Jackson collects, you know, the rent essentially, right? I mean, because that's mm. what he's doing during that time. He's looking at the numbers of the theater and you know, writing it all down in his accounting book. It's and then later in the movie when he when Jackson and uh the Sultan meet up he they're discussing like oh well whose turn is it to surrender this time oh well it's your turn we surrendered last time just showing yeah. like the farce of it all right and how the the 
the guys like the Sultan and Jackson, the people in power, are just keeping that system going, that cycle, mm-hmm. uh, and that, everybody's that, stuck in it because they're not yeah. willing to dream of a different, a different world, a different scenario. You know, I because I saw all those different things like the and I ne- but I never connected them all uh, in in the one go. So did you? So as because that's the that's the, the one thing I walked away from is when the Baron kind of collects his senses and turns out he's not you know dead at the end, and he's like, "Open the gates, open the gates," and they open the gates, and there's nothing going on outside. Exactly. What do you think happened there? Because I think that they like the the system, as you pointed out, is uh, got to the point where like there's not even a real war going on. Yeah. It's all entirely performative. This to is drive some ratings or shit. to drive or or to keep the the uh, the populace in a state of constant deprivation and yep. distraction and fear and yep. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so that they can be controlled uh, and exploited. It, it, absolutely, and and. That to me is the DNA. That is the fundamental stuff in this movie that Terry Gilliam is trying to get across inside of a fantastical package, right? Um, of imagination mm-hmm. and wonder and absurdity and lunacy. Uh, I think it's well, a brilliant that, way to convey those things to people who might not be receptive to them otherwise. Well, and there's there's also a lot, I guess, yeah, now that I'm really thinking about it, like the scene with uh, Vulcan, with Oliver yes. Reed just absolutely chewing the scenery. The, the union he's like scene, yeah. like <laughs> the un- Well, the union busting scene where his Cyclopsian, you know, Smiths are trying to sue for more of the profit. He's throwing bombs back. 2.5%, uh, take it or leave it. 5.5% or no increased production. Yeah, that was funny, but also like the where he's unveiling his latest weapon, and it's an intercontinental ballistic oh. weapon. And then and, and as he's going back he's bitching about like you know they used to be impressed when i'd come out with a wonder every thousand years then it was every hundred years now it's every decade like showing like what the god like this is almost american gods kind of level commentary and then he finally shows like it's like what is it he's like it's uh it kills the enemy what else? Like, no, no, all the enemy, the enemy's daughters and his sons and his cows. And it's it, it's and, and you yeah, can just sit back like, and push a button. You don't have to actually see anyone die is the the advantage right. that he tells to the little girl. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's that's. Uh, yeah. A lot, um, a lot of commentary there. What do you think? Because there's, there, there's a couple things in that scene that I thought were maybe just absurdity for its absurdity sake. And I'm not sure what the hell to make of it. But like. uh they all fall down in a volcano and they're in that pit and they're like, Oh my God, look at all these giants and gods and uh, you know, Vulcans up there. And he's like, we're all big and strong up here. And he, he pulls the Baron up and it turns out the Baron's actually bigger than him. Oh, that's and all these guys metaphor. are like, is it? <laughs> it's more class metaphor. Yeah, man. I mean, th- they're no different than the little people, right? The quote unquote little people. So once you get it's him just out perspective. of the pit. Yeah. Ah, God damn shit. You're <laughs> Dude, you're it's like everywhere in this movie. I'm telling you, this is I you're a big Terry Gilliam antenna. And a lot of this stuff, I was like, just, uh, I, oh, look at this fantasy. It's so in- inventive. And I'm definitely um, tuning in the Terry Gilliam brainwave for sure. OK, because it's funny, because like when we got to the ICBM, I recognized it was clever, but I felt it felt like, man, this is shoehorned because out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, because I just wasn't picking up all the other stuff until the very end. I started I started clicking to me at the very end. But yeah. I didn't and, see the whole piece of it. And that's like the social stuff. There's also some, I guess, less connected stuff, but still like part of what he's trying to get across here with this sort of imagination and the the preservation of imagination and its role in society. Um, 
it, it, you know, the, the stuff with like the head and the, the body, right? All that stuff is not directly connected to like social dynamics of the class war or anything like that, but it's mm-hmm. more just like this is what life is about, right? It's it's your heart versus your your head. Uh what right. the what the heart wants and what the mind wants sometimes two different things. Um and, and that was pretty effective. And then, you know, the the stuff that they do with the Baron's aging in you know uh, rapid aging in reverse and all that stuff and death coming for yeah. him i very much felt was like the thing that makes you old the thing that makes you i guess useless um and, and essentially dead is to lose that sense of imagination and the sense of of hope or the ability to dream of something different something better uh and, and i think that's kind of one of the through lines of the entire movie yeah it's 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 interesting is a a person is solidly in middle age now um but like i've i've become aware that like i feel like that life is a series of repeating 30 year cycles and maybe like 100 year cycles and okay. I thought like when the with with the Baron like aging, it's like one of those things. It's like where, you know, maybe you're 50 or 60 and it's like, hey, I've been through this uh, particular social upheaval. It's just different labels and different things that people are pissed off yeah. about and different forces that people are being reactionary against. And like you're like, get the hope that like, oh, well, maybe this time will be different. You know, the young people will do better than we did and they won't sell out this time. And mm-hmm. like you start feeling that youth and vigor and hope. And then five, ten years pass and like, oh, fuck, we're back in the mire again. I wonder right. if it's it's like supposed to suggest that because he goes through like two different ones where it's like, you know, um, he rides in and he's old. But then when he has a chance to save the town again, he's young. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that lasts until he has Venus taken away from. Him. I'm not exactly what yeah. sure, what what caused him to age when Vulcan banished him from from uh the the ballroom I think I think it, it was the lost connection with Venus which how can you blame him they that, made I mean, Uma feels like a look very incredible in this movie holy shit <laughs> Jesus she's gorgeous I've always had kind of a little Uma Thurman thing uh-huh. but and I I've seen like this still image and I'm like where the fuck is Uma Thurman looking this amazing on a half shell and it's in this movie and yeah. yeah when she pops out of the sea as Venus like they really build up that moment and it's it's that ballroom scene yeah, yeah it's yeah great. it's it's pretty amazing um but it, that feels like a very much commentary on like aging masculinity you know like Yeah for sure losing your your appeal uh with the opposite right or even even the like you know it's like ah you know if i uh if you you know it's like yeah like you're 75 it's like what the hell are you even going to do with the venus if you find one if if you pop open a a seashell and and there's the water nymph what what are you going to (laughs) do especially in the days before this is pre-vagra true so like you know a lot of guys are just hanging it hanging it up um but yeah, holy shit, Uma Thurman, goddamn, uh, mm-hmm. she's pitching pitching a fastball in this movie. Um, what do you think about? Okay, since you you got the antenna tuned to Gilliam, this is another thing I wondered. Why is the Baron constantly asserting that the town is in no danger? I thought it was very funny. He's like, "Oh no, the attack's over." I'm certain, and they did smash cut to the town just getting destroyed. You know, like yeah, it kept on getting in. And it's like, oh no, there, there's no immediate danger, and then the the gates are being breached. 
Um, I, I think those are in the moments where he's either losing hope, like after he's lost, you know, the, his his love, Venus. Um, it's either in the moments where he's losing hope or the, where he's being distracted by some other bit of life that needs to have his attention at the moment. Is Gilliam trying to in, engender a sense of cognitive dissonance in the audience? Because I feel like some of these points are at odds of each other, like the fact that the Baron, uh, as he loses hope, the war actually is, starts to be lost. But then at the end, he reveals that there's no war at all. Is this is this genuine? Is this trying to deliberately provoke that kind of mm-hmm. uh, George Orwell 1984? We were always at war with East Asia. We were never at war with East Asia. Like simultaneously, both of those things are true. And you got to believe it. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a bit of that for sure at the end. Um, Because, you know, Jackson protesting over do not open the gates, right? If we open these gates, the people will essentially find out that everything we've been telling them is bullshit. Uh, We have never been at war with East Asia or your your age. I don't know. Ingsoc, all that. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, I I, because like I said, other thing in middle age, I feel like that's there's like both things are true. Like it's almost Mm -hmm. like uh, you watch David Simon, any works of David Simon, and they're all saying essentially that change that the system is broken needs to be changed. But systemic change is impossible. The only thing you can do is like directly help out people where you can in your individual life and fight against the system where you can. But like it's ultimately hopeless. Uh and like that's um, that's kind of self-defeating. It's kind of like, a, you know, a, a yeah. lot of Marxist thought is like, well, capitalism's going to collapse. So just sit back and wait for it to happen. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't sound like a great plan. Yeah. I wonder if it's like that's that the, the dissonance of like, you know what? You can fight the system all you want. The system's going to win. But every once in a while yeah. you can you can nudge the, the teeth of the gear a notch or two forward. And like, if you give yeah. up all hope, you'll never get that nudge. Um, but also, if you just like strain and pull, you're just going to hurt yourself and burn yourself out, and 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 you're you'll beat your head against us, and the system will beat beat your head back. So that's a kind yeah. of form of cognitive dissonance that like it's 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 useless to resist, but also resistance uh, must be, the, but the resistance has to happen. Uh, I don't know. And I think at the end of the movie, he's regained that hope, right? He's become a young man again. Uh, he's, he's no longer, uh, hopeless and dying. He's now vital and he's showing the people the way. I mean, it it connects earlier with the sting stuff where they kill the hero simply for inspiring people for being a hero. Uh, they kill him because we'll have none of that. The people can't be inspired. They need to be, uh, feeling like their lives are pointless and meaningless and about to end at any moment. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the movie, he shows them that, in fact, that doesn't have to be true. It's not it, it's more a, a matter of like you get the future you want uh, and, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you simply say, well, nothing is working out and therefore I won't try to make something work out or change the system. Uh, yeah, that's that's what the ending is all about. And it's definitely got some of that cognitive dissonance in it. Do you have any idea of why? Because the man, the Baron himself, uh, visibly deages and ages throughout the movie. He's menaced by the Grim Reaper four different times. Finally, the Grim Reaper catches up with him, kills him, but he's not dead because that's just one of the many, first of many times he's died. Yeah. Uh, but his companions, 
I, I thought sure in that final scene that they were going to de-age as they started resuming like, you know, the the roles as world's fastest, strongest, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. they they weren't. They were still like recognizably old and bent. They just got reinvigorated by the Baron himself. Do you have any idea why that choice was made instead of like de-aging all of them? Because they're all no. larger than like none of these people are like mortal men, I don't think. Uh yeah, the only thing I can think is like a uh, hope springs eternal kind of thing where if he's the inspiration and he's the the folklore hero that everybody's looking at he would be immortal right that could, he could inspire mm-hmm. people it's like a lay miz sort of thing where at the end all these people have died uh and, but but they're looking on from this other plane of existence saying gotcha. here's our example follow us and we will you know be victorious Maybe that's what they're getting at. I don't know. It's one of the best sight gags in the film when all the old men are sitting there and they're tired and they, and the Baron's trying to get him up and they pan over and Bucifus's horse is like just sitting on his ass. Literally. Uh-huh. <laughs> like you almost never see a horse in that position. It's just horse kind of like slumped over, like in a couch potato <laughs> position, a real horse, mind you. It was yeah. fucking hilarious. I, I laughed out loud just at this horse schlubbing it over there. There's a lot um, of that. I, one of my favorite visuals <laughs> of the entire movie is when uh, shit. What's his name? I know all their names. Uh, Berthold. The first time he runs from the Sultan's uh, castle or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The, the like road runner thing they do with his feet where he like digs into the yeah. stonework and uh-huh. I wasn't even sure what was happening at first because like you look over at Eric Idle and he's just like grunting and sweating and like looking around. Same. I was like, what, what I was to be water realized what the fuck was going on. Yeah. And then finally you see, Oh, Oh, he's lowering into the ground. I see rubble behind him. Okay. I get it. And that was a really cool visual. And I don't even really know how they did it with conventional effects. The, the, yeah. It reminded me a lot of a similar sequence in Kung Fu hustle where they're just going oh, total yeah. Warner brothers. And it's like a literal, uh, wily e. coyote versus mm-hmm. the road runner, except for they're human and they're, that the, the, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess, yeah. Uh, Stephen Chow's a very, uh, Terry Gilliam kind of guy when it comes to like in, inventive visuals and magical realism and stuff like that. For sure. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also really like the world's strongest man in doing the three ship of the line hammer throw at the end. Oh yeah. That's cool. Uh, but they yeah, all that got whole to, final yeah. scene is amazing. Just the chaos mm-hmm. of it all and everybody getting involved. The, the, uh, what's his name? The breath guy, uh, Gustavus. When he like blows out and, and you're thinking, okay, he's got this, you know, big breath that he uses. Uh, to blow people away. But then you don't think about the other side effect, which is when he inhales after that, it's going to pull right. everyone in. And then, you know, they do that a couple times. That was a lot of fun. And he got stuck. What was it? Was it a handkerchief that got stuck in his throat or is it the it ladies pants? Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering too, but yeah, it's like the super, the super suction power. Uh, I, yeah. Like what, um, Anything like in particular stand out as impressive? Um, the, the some of the two uh, particularly impressive shots I can think of are the opening and ending. Like they open with uh, the siege of this town, mm-hmm. and like I know this is all composited, but I could not tell you how. Like the tower yeah. in front is probably real. Obviously, the coastline is real. The city is a fake and it's model, but it's on fire, and mm-hmm. the fire and smoke is real. 
and that shit had tons of depth and looked amazing. And the last shot of the Baron riding off into, I don't know, the glory of Christ come again, whatever you would call that, like sunset cloud kind of thing like that, too, was like. I'm 100% sure it's composited, but again, I couldn't tell you how or what or what part of it was staged and what part of it. Um, I thought those were beautiful. Yeah. Uh, one of the other parts that I really love, an effect that yeah, I understand more how they got this one, but when the Moon King is riding after them on Sybil, his three-headed like vulture or something. Yeah. He's got this big uh-huh. asparagus spear that he throws at him. If you haven't seen uh-huh. this movie, this probably sounds insane. And yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and then the he says, hey, uh, this head of Sybil, go chase that person. This other head, chase that other person. And then those people run off in different directions and Sybil just rips itself apart this, following yeah. these other these other things. And I like it, a it's a robot, it turns out, which is kind of cool. Uh, but mm-hmm. I love that moment. It's just hilarious. Yeah. And it felt very again, I keep going back to um Paul Bunyan, but it felt like one of those like it's a child solution to the problem. You know, we'll just yeah. split up and go into three for this <laughs> and the three heads will just literally tear themselves apart trying to fulfill their master's uh wishes. I, the the other one that I really loved for I don't know, just for the comedy of it is during that final battle um, when the, the 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 troops, the Turks, I guess, are chasing him on horseback and he just runs them around into this circle in the spiral. And then he's just sitting in the middle of this whirlwind of horses going in a circle, spinning around, <laughs> chopping their heads off. And yeah. and the bodies are like stacking up. They're just throwing people onto a pile as he's doing mm-hmm. this. It was hilarious. Yeah, it's mechanized to be, be it's like a lot, so many heads lopped off in this film. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was yeah. the Baron's go to move. Like, uh, yeah. and then the Sultan, to be fair, like, you know, his treasure betrayed True. him or let let the Baron off with all of his boom head just whipped off. Uh, oh, another section. And this is such an easy effect. And, and honestly, one of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean did it, too. Filming people in water upside down. Oh yeah, looks really fucking cool. It uh-huh. looks like they're 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 busting through some kind of liminal space. Yeah, uh, and like you know, just it's it's a simple effect of like having Eric Idle stand on his head in the water and like kick his ankles out. Looks like he's being sucked through some kind of Stargate portal. Uh-huh. And again, easiest thing in the world, but it's so- something you don't ever see that perspective of, and it really probably the cheapest effect in the movie. But it looked yeah. it looked it looked really great. Uh, another the other funny thing, I, I got a kick out of all of Vulcan's dudes. Um, this is inspiration for the minions, right? They all have oh, like these these helmets. They've all got the helmets, and they've got these like they're all they're all Cyclops, so they all have mm-hmm. like but they're working in this kind of like metalworking factory, so they all have like welders hoods, but you know they just got the one giant eye. Yeah. Or like the one big goggle or the one monocle. Um, hmm. And I kept on getting that kind of minions theme. But I really loved when uh, Venus like assuaged her husband's anger, essentially said, <laughs> well, yeah, I did all this so that you would be inflamed in passion. And then it like it, you know, Vulcan's like, oh, you clever girl. And then they kind of pull out and you see like Vulcan's hammer and pistons and all that stuff firing. It's like a big 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 sex joke but it's it's really it's i thought it was really funny yeah uh whatever gets you off i guess if if jealousy over uh 
your mate is the thing that does it. Sure. Go for it. I guess. Yeah, man. Cucking. Cucking. It's all the rage. It's a big category on Pornhub nowadays. Falcon loves that uh, shit. Yeah. Gets it. So it's a bit for Bavagra. Whatever it took, man. Whatever it took, Vulcan. The last thing that I want to talk about, which I thought was hilarious in that gallows humor uh, kind of way, is when the Sultan plays the what is it the torturers the the, the torturers <laughs> apprentice or something he, like that the torturers apprentice ballad or something yeah and he's uh-huh. playing it on an instrument that i can only describe as a a, a slave organ a, a prisoner uh-huh. organ i it's horrible it's got all these like spikes that every time he presses a key it jabs some person and their tortured screams or what makes the music it's terrible it comes out the pipes and yeah i i loved it <laughs> and it's it, and again it's like monty python so it's not as gruesome as it is just kind of like yeah. you know funny but yeah 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 yeah. all of their <laughs> their screams coming out the pipes and then the fact that like one of the keys got stuck uh-huh. <laughs> at the end he has to kind of bang it to get in the ear to go until it unsticks oh man yeah it's great before we get out of here, I want to talk about one final thing. And honestly, I could go either way on this because, uh, you know, fuck, fuck the, the production companies and the studios. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned that the budget was like it, what, this movie costs like forty five million dollars or something. But the budget originally is supposed to be twenty five. And I think this was it started off at 20th Century Fox and it went into Columbia. And then during that transition, also, the studio changed hands between presidents or ceos or whatever Mm -hmm. and gilliam says that uh they agreed on a much higher budget and then they were trying to screw him because i guess uh he butted heads with these particular people a lot over uh, brazil so there's kind of revenge of this was also desire from the seat like um i think it was eric idol described it as like uh uh, a lion, you know, when it takes over a pride, it goes and murders all the cubs from the previous uh, male mm-hmm. lion, so that its its gene line can can. Die. I'm not gonna we're not gonna waste any of our time taking care of this other guy's fucking cubs. Yeah. Uh, they they went around and kind of murdered the other CEO's passion projects and let him. What do you make of that? Because the the I, I got a pretty smoking gun piece of evidence. Uh, is, that, like, is the smoking gun that they only did 117 prints of this yes. movie? Yeah, that is that to me says it all. Redi- they, they even mentioned someone even mentioned that like your average art film, which doesn't get a lot of it uh, doesn't get a wide release, gets something in the neighborhood of at that time, 400 prints. Right. Just to circulate at the art. This was supposed to be a big budget film that would go wide in all the cineplexes and it gets 117 copies. Yeah, that's bullshit. So I, I tend to think that like, you know, the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but like probably closer to Terry's side. Of uh-huh. Yeah. When you print, look at and, and I get, like uh, the, the, and, and, the numbers of prints that get printed for modern movies, it's thousands, thousands of prints. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Or well, I mean, I don't even know what the, that even means in the days of like digital uh, prints going around and stuff. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Like it's like you can you can open up on 4000 screens. Mm-hmm uh nowadays more um so that yeah it's clearly and the fact that like obviously and they they call this a box office bomb i don't know how any movie can make money if there's only 100 copies of it in the whole fucking world going around yeah uh so like when you see almost near universal praise 
And yet the movie was considered a box office bomb and kind of like joked about like that seemed very unfair mm-hmm. that like they didn't produ- they didn't uh, they didn't promote it. Uh, they didn't even properly distribute it. And yet it was kind of like talked about in this terms of like this, this big like director ego, pa- like like a like a like a water world type of th- situation. And that felt like extremely unfair and made me pissed um, 30 years in arrears for Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Right. I'm with you. I guess like some of this was around. I don't know if you knew this, but Coca-Cola owned Columbia Pictures at one time. Um, And and this was part of like Coca-Cola was worried because like the Hollywood industry is uh, the movie industry is pretty volatile. And so they wanted to kind of get that off their main books. And so they spun off this other company with TriStar Hmm. um, that became like Columbia Pictures Enterprises or something like that. Uh, and I guess this was all like a lot of why this wasn't printed very much is because they were trying to make the books look really good for shareholders. And so they didn't want to spend any money on marketing and therefore didn't want to spend any money mm. on printing a whole bunch of the film because they knew people weren't going to see it. It's like, yeah, talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy when you, you you're trying to not spend money and therefore you don't make money. It's like. Yeah, of course that was going to happen. And it sucks that it happened to this movie because I think it's a great movie. Yeah. Uh, and of course, it's found its audience since like it's considered yeah. kind of a cult classic and uh, it's it's very well regarded. It did very well at the um, British Academy Film Awards. I'm not sure if it did anything at the Oscars. Uh, uh, I, no, I guess it was nominated. It- for four, you got art direction, costume, visual effects, and makeup, which is about right. It actually lost best visual effects to The Abyss, which that's okay. fair. Okay, it was I doing some Abyss, cutting edge shit over on The Abyss. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like The Abyss probably had peak bursts of like innovation and stuff, whereas this is like just saturated with it. But I don't know. Yeah. Like you know, the, the Abyss, The Abyss filmmaking was pretty legendary too. So mm-hmm. um, maybe not. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I genuinely enjoyed this. I know Epic Mouth was a little nervous, but thought uh, they'd uh, built up enough goodwill with the previous three films. And honestly, I don't think you needed it. It's uh, yeah. I mean, I would like I was about to say it's not the worst one, but that's damning with me. This is actually a very, very good film. It's very fun. Yeah. Um, if you can over like, like I said, if you can overlook the kind of dates dated practical effects in some areas. You're going to get a real visual treat and a fun, a fun, very fast paced two hour movie that just kind of sails by. And mm-hmm. if you get your atten- ant- uh, your antenna tuned just right, apparently there's a lot of social commentary in there, too. Apparently <laughs> went, went, over, went over a lot of my head. Uh, but thanks, Epic Mouthful. We re- really appreciate the commission and uh, all your support you've shown us over this last year. I hope you enjoy the nostalgia uh and and escapism combo that 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 you're that you're looking for and hope everyone else enjoyed it as well and again as a reminder this sounds like a cool idea if you'd like to get our opinion on your favorite film or television show or whatever we'll watch two-ish hours of content all you got to do is go to support.baldmove.com click on the commission of podcast link and uh, see the whole proposition there we'll see you on the next one until then i'm aaron and i'm jim later